Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 9 o'clock in the morning on September 16th, 2022. It's been quite a week here in Washington. In the Senate, bipartisan negotiations on a marriage equality bill continued, but a vote was punted until after the midterms. Speaking of which, we're finally done with primaries. Thank you, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Delaware for wrapping us up. We're going to talk about who's in a better position for electoral gains with less than two months until Election Day. The economy is always front and center in these kind of elections. President Joe Biden helped evade a nationwide railway strike, but there's also a mix of other news on inflation, poverty, and health insurance. Another big topic for the midterms, abortion. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a 15-week abortion ban, and that's just the latest fallout from the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade earlier this summer. Here to discuss these topics and more on the pod today is Melanie Mason, National Political Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning. Gabe DiBenedetti, National Correspondent for New York Magazine and author of the brand new book, The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Morning, Gabe. Morning, Jason. And Elena Treen, congressional reporter for Axios and co-author of the Axios Sneak Peek newsletter. Hello, Elena. Good morning. Hello. Well, uh, as I said, it's been one of those kind of crazy news-filled weeks. The uh, um, Congress, both chambers were back after, uh, after the, you know, like the last bit of the recess ended for the House. The House put in a grueling two days, uh, full two full days after being off for six weeks before heading home. But a lot of what was going on was, you know, people were were just enwrapped by like the economy, the primaries, just all this stuff that I mentioned in the, in the lead in. Let's start uh, and and talk about the economy. Uh, I, I just I mean, I think that the, the I feel like the, the railway strike, the almost strike uh, that was evaded sneaked up on a lot of people and and really had the potential to disrupt supply chain, just, you know, absolutely uh, make people's lives miserable from, from what they get, where they get their groceries to everything else. Uh, Gabe, let's start with you. Um, This, this seemed to be, you know, another one of those things where Biden, uh, I know he didn't swoop in at the last second, but it certainly seemed like it. I mean, it was, but he really, he really leaned into this pretty hard and, and helped negotiate, uh, a sort of a ceasefire. Yeah, substantively, this is a pretty significant uh, development because it does seem like you just outlined there that this would have been fairly dramatic for, um, you know, for the economy, for supply chains, for people's day to day lives, especially when it comes to agriculture and food. Um, it was not, you know, the sexiest hot topic for a long time. Um, the actual, you know, uh, meat of the dispute was interesting as well because it had to do with the way that the railroad workers were being treated and what particularly sick leave that they wanted um there's a lot of interesting stuff here but I, you know i want to talk about the politics for one second which is um it this strike was averted just as 
Biden was talking about uh, celebrating the Inflation Reduction Act, which was, you know, famously his big piece of legislation from a little bit earlier um, in this fall or late summer. Um, But that was threatening to be overshadowed by a bad inflation report. Um, So then you sort of have all these countervailing things. And then this news that the the strike was averted. The problem for Biden uh, is on purely political terms, because, again, this was a substantive victory, is that you don't tend to get a lot of credit for averting disasters. You know, (laughs) saying this could have been a lot worse uh, doesn't tend to get you very far in terms of political victories. But but yeah, this was a very big economic deal that could have indeed been really, really bad. And Elena, up on Capitol Hill, there were, I mean, there was so much chatter about this among among a lot of topics. But, you know, uh, we had a couple of Republican senators uh, trying to push uh, a, a resolution that would have forced the railway railways and the unions to uh, accept the this 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 blue ribbon commission's you know board's recommendations on it. And the White House basically said, butt out. The big guys got this. <laughs> they did. I mean. It was pretty striking how close it came to to being. I mean, we saw and Gabe just laid this out really well, but we, we saw Amtrak cancel tons of of trains. A lot of people being affected by this, and of course, Capitol Hill wanted to get involved. But you're right, Biden was like, "This is I'll handle this. I'm the union guy. I'm Amtrak Joe. I'll I'll handle this." So he met with many labor groups. I know over the past week. Um, to to reach a deal, but it did come really close. And I know many people on Capitol Hill were really frustrated and, and concerned about this because of how bad it had gotten and to the point of, you know, seeing a lot of, of trains and, and railways shut down in, in the time being as the strike was happening. And so, um, you know, it's interesting. I think many times with Congress, they don't normally let Biden do his thing often. They want they want to have their moment on Capitol Hill and try to solve it as well from a congressional standpoint. Um, but the way it did work out is they they ended up being a bit more hands-off, I think, in this. And it, it honestly didn't become, I was expecting to be a much bigger issue on Capitol Hill, despite a lot of people being frustrated. We didn't really see it be at the forefront of their minds. They were talking about same-sex marriage bills, the, the spending bill they need to do at the end of the year, permitting reform. Um, and this was just one issue that I, in my personal opinion, from my conversations with members, wasn't a priority, um, but definitely concerning to to a lot of members. Melanie, Gabe mentioned the uh, um, you know that the president was you know sort of celebrating the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, you know, the White House is obviously very proud of this. They've been sort of you know rolling out a series of events nationwide over the last uh, few weeks. I mean, Biden had this. Uh, you know, this, this sort of celebration, a little kind of party at the White House uh, or earlier this week, uh, just as news, you know, hit that inflation was still high. Gas prices are coming down. That's a, sort of a very visible sign that people associate with inflation. But food prices were up and, and so forth. Is And was it was it odd to just seem like, oh, you know, we've got this looming strike. We've got a, another series of bad news and Biden's having this this thing at, at the White House, did it come across you, you, you know, like, as sort of dissonant a little bit? I think it absolutely came across as dissonant. And I think it threatened to come across as even worse if I think the strike had gone through. I think that there really did feel like there was this teetering moment. We've had so much sort of contradictory economic data points that we've seen. You know, we, as you said, gas prices are coming down and 
we'll have job reports that uh, look pretty good. And then this inflation report, which I think really was uh, disappointing to uh, a lot of economists and to a lot of Democrats. And I think that if you had a one-two punch of a sort of tone-deaf White House celebratory event on a day where the stock market absolutely lost its mind, and then you had a strike that threatened to upend the supply chain yet again uh, for the second time in two years, I think that that would have been um, really congealing this this narrative of, of economic troubles after a time where things were a little bit confusing enough that you could sort of say the narrative was a little fuzzier. Um, and so I do think that that this sense of narrowly averting disaster, even though, yes, he will not get the credit um, of saying things could be much worse. I think that things would have been much, much worse because you had this inflation news. Um, I don't know who in the White House thought it was a great idea to schedule this event the day that they knew the inflation report was coming out. I think that showed a lot of confidence that they thought this was going to be a good report. Um, and when it wasn't, I, I, I was watching the coverage thinking, man, um, they're very lucky that uh, Lindsey Graham bailed them, bailed them out, which I know we will talk about a little bit later. <laughs> I think that could have been really just egg on their faces. Yeah, I do. I do want to get into Graham uh, and and abortion for a second, but like just to follow up with what you were saying, uh, Melanie, like the you know the the inflation report was mixed, but then this other report came out from the Census Bureau, which kind of got lost in the mix, which is that poverty and particularly child poverty is at its lowest level in decades, and the number of people year over year who are, who lack health insurance has fallen. So so more people have health insurance, fewer people are, are in poverty. And that was just one of those those reports that just got lost in all this. Well, I think that that's right. And I think, well, look at, first of all, look at the, sc- to the time scope that we're talking about for these two reports. Our inflation, we're, we're measuring our month to month and also kind of the year over year. Whereas you take a, a pullback and you see this under this long sweep of time, some pretty significant gains. But we're kind of an immediate gratification sort of society right now. And so I think people are reacting a little bit more to the changes that they're seeing in a shorter period of time. Of course, to, to your point, because you have these data points that kind of seem to be pointing in, if not contradictory de- directions, just kind of all over the place, it did rob um, the, the Democrats and really just kind of the country as a whole to really soak in what I think is a really significant uh, strides in these major problems, such as long-lasting poverty and healthcare coverage, uh, because people were looking still at what how their grocery bill is changing week over week or month over month, and that feels a little bit more immediate in the moment. All right. Uh, it's it's time for Lindsey Graham's second moment in the sun uh, th- this week. Uh, or just as, uh, you know, a lot of these reports were coming out, I mean, the, you know, the Republican strategists had to just be licking their chops to say, like, inflation's still high. This has been the drumbeat from uh, particularly from Republican leaders on the Hill and and people running, you know, out, out uh, particularly at the Senate level. They, they really, you know, have latched onto the economy. And then uh, Lindsey Graham introduces legislation <laughs> on Tuesday to uh, ban abortion for uh, after, after the 15th week. We have a clip uh, from his press conference. Abortion's not banned in America. It's left up to elected officials in America to define the issue. You have states have the ability to do it at the state level, and we have the ability in Washington to speak on this issue if we choose. I have chosen to speak. I've chosen to to craft legislation that I think is eminently reasonable in the eyes of the world, and I hope the American people. So, Gabe, uh, is this is this just the sort of thing where the, the White House must be like it's like a gift from God? I don't think they would put it in exactly those terms, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wrote about this this morning in a new column up at New York Magazine. One of the ways to think about this is 
Biden has been doing best uh, in the midterm environment when he is just simply not the point of the news. You know, this happened. Lindsey Graham came in and stole the political spotlight shortly after or right around the time of this, you know, not so great inflation report that the White House was really not happy about after, you know, months of talking or weeks of talking about an improving economy. But you know what the one topic that has been activating Democrats over the last few months is it's abortion above everything else. And and I think you see the political fallout from this in the way that fellow Republicans talked about Graham, what Graham was doing. A whole lot of them were essentially asking, Lindsay, what on earth, man? Like we have, you know, we're trying to be unified on this. Um, and he said, you know, this isn't about strategy. I just want to, you know, get the policy done. Yeah, obviously everyone always says that. But the Democrats that I've talked to about this, because they don't think that this has any real chance of becoming law and instead see this as another way to highlight, um, you know, real Republican radical policy, as they want to put it, on abortion, especially in the aftermath of the repeal of Roe v. Wade, see this as just another data point in their general their general argument, which they're now leaning into, which is, you know, these Republicans are too extreme for you, average voter. Not just that, but if you are a you know, younger voters, especially those are the people that they're focusing on, um, who is questioning whether or not they should be voting in the midterms. This is yet another thing that Democrats plan to highlight to say, you know, Lindsey Graham is coming for your life, for, for your way of life. And Elena, you know, the on, on his best days, Mitch McConnell, you know, has a, has the the sort of uh, facial expression like somebody just ran over his dog. Uh, but <laughs> at, at, at his at his at his media availabilities with with other Senate leaders, I I couldn't help but detect that the the minority leader who is really a, a, about as canny a strategist, he always lets people. Uh, when, when they're on fire, he lets the, he just keeps that fire burning. Uh, he he could not have been happy about the conversation being about nationwide abortion bans. No, he was furious, um, and I spent a lot of time talking with his staff and others. I mean, and what everyone's saying is exactly right. They were really frustrated, Republicans on and off the hill, McConnell included, that on a day when the inflation numbers came out. Um, showing you know, it, inflation's worsening and the stock market then dropped 1,200 points. Um, no one was could understand why Lindsey Graham would thrust a politically losing issue like abortion for Republicans back into the spotlight. Um, and they were not expecting it. I mean, Graham told me, my colleague, as much that he did not, he said, quote, I did not get permission to do this. Um, and it was really frustrating. And I know that a lot of Republicans were upset that the headlines the next day were about Graham and not more so about what had happened with inflation and um, the Dow dropping so many points. And, it, you know, when it comes down to it, I, and I did a story on this earlier this week, you know, you have not just Lindsey Graham, but also someone like um, Rick Scott, two of the highest profile Republicans in the Senate defying McConnell publicly in such a vital election year, just two months now, less than two months before the midterms elections. It's pretty stunning. Um, and the timing of Graham's bill just didn't make sense to a lot of people. They didn't understand why he would thrust this. I'm, some conversations I had, um, people thought that it was kind of a play between him and an SBA list and their president, Marjorie Dannensfeller, who have been, um, who the, the night that Graham dropped this bill had a, had a big gala that was, um, touting Graham's bill. But, you know, at the end of the day, abortion is a really, as we've seen, 
bad issue for Republicans and a really energizing issue for Democrats. And so um, McConnell was definitely not happy and sees that the, the work that he's been doing to try and help boost candidates in the Senate uh, ahead of the elections, you know, Graham's bill and Rick Scott in many ways working against that. And so it's really, it was really interesting to see the fallout of that and see the frustration that was just boiling on Capitol Hill that day after Graham released that bill. And Melanie, uh, there's more, there's more like sort of midterm uh, issue, you know, sort of, uh, Placement, people were just pushing issues to the front that tend to animate people, and one of those is marriage equality. Um, We we found out yesterday that the there's been a bipartisan group, you know, that has been working on on uh, you know a a marriage equality bill. The House passed one with bipartisan support right before the the summer break, Um, and that yesterday we found out that we knew that they were negotiating, but yesterday we found out that they were going to uh, they need more time and they wanted to punt it until after the midterms. Obviously, that's disappointing uh, for people who want this uh, issue resolved. Uh, But could this also be politically motivating for a lot of people if you know the if the message is send me to Washington because I'll vote this way on this marriage equality bill. I think that there's definitely that ability for Democrats. I thought that there was an interesting decision made on the behalf of of Senate Democrats and particularly Senator Baldwin um, not to sort of force this issue prior to the midterms because it certainly sounded like the message they were getting from Senate Republicans is if, if you hold this after the election, you're, you're, you're going to get more of us to vote for it. And if you don't use this as a political cudgel in advance, uh, maybe some of us will, will come uh, to the table. And so perhaps that's this is just purely a show of good faith that we're not going to unnecessarily force Republicans into a vote that would make them uncomfortable prior to the election in hopes of actually getting the bill passed uh, in the lame duck. Uh, but I also think that, Jason, you're right, that there is also this when you have this issue hanging out there, that there's a sense of pending action then it's one more thing you can add to the list um, to say to voters that care about LGBTQ rights, um, hey, you know, if you want to make sure that there's absolutely no question that this is going to get enshrined in law, Senate Democrats are going to be your better bet on this. Uh, I do get the sense that there were maybe some Democrats who would have wished that uh, that there'd be a little bit more hardball played, maybe make the Republicans feel a little bit more uncomfortable about holding this vote uh, in advance. But I also think that there's plenty of fodder uh, out there right now if for people who, if they're motivated by LGBT rights, uh, with the spate of legislation that we're seeing in the states that uh, are dealing with transgender issues uh, and also just more broadly uh, gay and lesbian teachers, uh, people talking about sexuality in schools, that I think that there's enough to fire people up about this issue that if this maybe made the marriage issue slightly less fiery in advance of the midterms, there's plenty else there uh, for Democrats to be emphasizing. And, and certainly uh, Chuck Schumer, the, the Senate Majority Leader, Democrat from New York, I mean, he in, in announcing in the the, the delay, um, you know, he, he managed to work into that messaging that like, we're not going to let, uh, you know, we're going to make sure that Clarence Thomas doesn't get to overturn, uh, you know, all these rights, Ogreville and, and, and so forth. I mean, there, there was a little bit, even though he's giving Baldwin and, and, and her, you know, group a, a little bit more time. He, 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 he got that in there with the Supreme Court. It's like the Supreme Court is is a, a part of almost every one of these hot button issues that they're messaging on. Well, that's what Thomas's opinion allowed them to do, right? I mean, it, he gave them so many 
uh, slow softballs down the middle for them to swing at. Uh, so whether it's LGBT uh, rights or contraception uh, or even you know, interracial marriage, because that opinion uh, in Dobbs uh, was so sweeping, I think that Democrats now often have this ability to raise the specter of the Supreme Court uh, in pretty much any hot button issue that comes up. We have a lot more to talk about, uh, including the now that the primaries are over, this sprint to the midterms. Uh, we, we have less than two months left. We'll talk a little bit about that, as well as some of the other uh, issues that we can get into, like the omnipresence of Donald Trump uh, and possibly whether, you know, the, the, some of the spectacle of having immigrants shipped around to places like Martha's Vineyard. Uh, but we're going to take a short break here on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill along with Melanie Mason, Gabe DiBenedetti, and Elena Train. Today's podcast brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. One and a half million members strong. The Teamsters Union are America's largest and most diverse labor union. They represent every aspect of American the American workforce, from vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, and bakers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters Union and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, along with Melanie Mason, National Political Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Gabe DiBenedetti, National Correspondent for New York Magazine, and author of the brand new book, The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama, and Elena Treen, Congressional Reporter for Axios and co-author of the Axios Sneak Peek Newsletter. Gabe, let's talk uh, about the unbelievably long primary season, actually not every primary, but just the fact that it's over. New Hampshire and Rhode Island and Delaware voted uh, on on Tuesday. That was a wrap for primary seasons um, where, you know, it, it, it has allowed a lot of conversation about midterms, about what happens in midterms to the president's party, to the minority party, historic trends. Where Where do you see you know, each one of the parties in in an almost evenly divided Congress. If they are even in the Senate. They're basically even in the House in a lot of ways. Um, you know, this is going to be a heck of a of a sprint to election day, and a, an early voting starts just in in a little while. 
um, in in some states. Where, where do you see the parties stacking up as they you know as they eye election day? Well, I think one thing that's very interesting here is that the answer that I'll give you now is very different than the answer I would have given you two or three months ago, um, and that reflects not just some of the broader political um, trends that we've been talking about over the last few minutes here. Um, which have been pretty good to to the Democrats for the most part, but also some of the results that we've seen in a lot of these races where people who are either backed by former President Trump or, um, you know, are are aligned with his way of thinking um, have won their primaries. And in that, this is in a lot of states where uh, they are essentially battleground states where it's not totally clear that that brand of politics in 2022 will do so well. Look at that's what happened in the Senate race. Uh, in in um, New Hampshire this last week, uh, when I think about this, you know, it's sort of a difficult. It, it, we're still far enough out that it's, it would be silly to forecast where we are. But I talked to um, John Anzalone, who's President Biden's pollster, a leading Democratic pollster, this last week, uh, and I just quoted him in this story that I recently put out. And I want to just read this quote because I think it covers the expectations pretty well. What he said is, "What's important is not to misread this. Democrats aren't like sitting there super optimistic." Uh, but we believe we're in a competitive situation, and that's a big difference from May 1. We were on the defensive. Now, he says, no one's making the prediction that we're going to kick ass. The prediction is we're not going to get our ass kicked. And for the midterms, that's a pretty interesting thing. For sure. And I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned New Hampshire because we had this, you know, Maggie Hassan, you know, uh, former governor. Uh, she's just running for re-election to the Senate. Uh, she won her first race. You know, it was fairly close. Uh, everyone expected this to be very close this year. Mitch McConnell went out of his way to uh, to recruit Chris Sununu, the governor. Uh, the governor uh, said no, thank you, and actually, hell no, <laughs> which put them, you know, like scrambling to find uh, candidates. It, it the primary came down really to two uh, a, a former a retired army general Don Bolduc and the state senate president Chuck Morris Morris is a little bit more in the Sununu mode but just not as well known uh, Bolduc is a big Trump guy uh, and we've got a a before and after clips of of Bolduc let's let's do the before when he's talking about the 2020 election results I signed a letter saying that Trump won the election and damn it I stand by my election. I'm not switching horses baby and now after, now that he's the Republican nominee. We, uh, you know, live and learn, right? Um, and I've done a lot of research on this, and I've spent the past couple of weeks talking to Granite Staters all over the state, and I have come to the conclusion, and I want to be definitive on this. The election was not stolen, but elections have consequences. And unfortunately, President Biden is the legitimate president of this country. So, Elena, when when Mitch McConnell talks about candidate quality uh, in 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 Senate uh, nominees for the Republican Party, uh, is 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 Dan Bolduc who he had in mind? You think? I mean, obviously he wanted Sununu, but this this is just again a, another another miss for for the Republicans. It seems. Yeah, New Hampshire was a really interesting state, and I'm surprised. I think many people are surprised Republicans didn't get more involved in the primary. I mean, we know that McConnell, I mean, apart from a lot of Republicans wanting Chris Sununu, Governor um, Sununu, to put his, you know, throw his name into the ring, and he didn't. Um, they then put some of their forces behind Chuck Morse, but they didn't do so in a, in a way big enough to really help him win the primary. And we saw that, obviously, earlier this week, 
when he lost. And so um, it's been fascinating. And, and I've reported on this um, you know, over the past few months. Maggie Hassan is someone who I think was seen as a very vulnerable incumbent in New Hampshire. And she's had more of an easy pass because they didn't really have a strong Republican top front runner um, going against her. And it's allowed her really to gather more support and fundraising, I think, than if she had a really tough challenger. Um, and of course, now they have Bolduc. And I know that it isn't obviously Republicans' first choice, but it's surprising as well that they didn't put more energy pushing and boosting Chuck Morse, who many Republicans, particularly established Republicans, wanted to be the nominee. And so um, you're totally right. He, he's a candidate that I don't think many Republicans see as very strong. Um, but we'll have to see what happens now. A lot of these candidates, particularly in the primaries, go more toward the polls uh, in order to win their primaries. And now um, we're seeing that, as we just heard from this audio, uh, changing their ele general election strategy. And so I think a lot of the what we're going to see from ads and fundraising in these final weeks, now that we know that he's the nominee, will um, give us a better sense of the race. But really, I, I'd argue, given Maggie Hassan, a much easier pass than many people thought she would have so far. And and also there, it's just the margin of error is so small. Um, you know, I mean, like the it, it's true. Hassan probably has a this is the candidate that Democrats wanted, right? The Democrats put <laughs> a little bit of their muscle into getting Bolduc, you know, like uh, n nominated as well, their money. But I mean, there's so many options for each party in a 50 50 Senate. It's just it, it is this it's really hard to get a. a, a your pulse on who really has the advantage because you see one poll, you know, it's just like up and down, up and down, whether it's Georgia or Arizona or, or Pennsylvania. Uh, Melanie, let's, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the house because, you know, the, it, it seems like California, um, you know, this is where the, the, both the speaker and the minority leader are, are from in the house. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, uh, who represents Bakersfield, he has had a, you know, he's been very aggressive in fundraising all across the country. Um, but I mean, there are all kinds of of really crazy house races in in California where the majority could really, you know, this is where it could happen, particularly with the way that the, you know, California has its electoral system where you have the, you know, the top two finishers. It, it tends to sort of breed a little bit more moderation um, what, what are you seeing in terms of like the battle for the house, you know, from, from the perspective of California? Well, I think to your point, the top two system, um, I think actually maybe is a really good sort of split screen with what we're seeing, particularly in some of these Senate races elsewhere, uh, which is that when you have these closed primaries, I think you do see the, the most hardcore base of both parties to coalesce behind a nominee. And so you're seeing, particularly in a lot of these Senate races, um, and governor's races, and quite frankly, some House races too, uh, the Republican base, uh, when it's a closed primary election, getting behind um, who they see as the most Trump-friendly candidate. And so then I think that that pivot to the general election is a lot tougher. Uh, in a state like California, you have these races where the top two, you have to appeal to independents and to maybe even some Democrats uh, into the primary as well. And so I think a great example of this uh, is the 40th congressional district here in California, which is Orange, Orange County. Uh, Congresswoman Young Kim had a kind of surprisingly tough challenge from a completely underfunded, very little known uh, challenger to her right. She ended up having to spend millions of dollars in the primary uh, to sort of stamp out that challenge. 
And I would argue that if we were in a system where we were in a closed party primary, there's a very good chance she could have been in trouble. But because of the top two, she was able to get into that top two. And now Republicans, I think, are very relieved because this is a more moderate incumbent who has a wider appeal. And I think CD40, which was seen as maybe potentially a pickup opportunity for Democrats, uh, now is maybe a little bit less enticing because you have a, a less uh, Trump-friendly uh, Republican on the on the ballot. Uh, but there are still some other races that I think are going to be pretty intense. I'm particularly will point people to uh, the David Valadeo race. This is a Republican uh, in the Central Valley who has perpetually been a, in a very Democratic-leaning seat, uh, and so therefore has perpetually been a Democratic target. Uh, this, he is also um, the one Republican, uh, if I have this right, the one Republican who voted for impeachment. No, I'm sorry, there are two um, who got into, who, who have made it through their primary. Um, and this is because Kevin McCarthy uh, is a huge ally of Valadeo's, and essentially, um, I think behind the scenes, some back-channeling urged President Trump to stay out of this primary. Trump did not endorse any challenger uh, to Valadeo in the primary, which is an exception for the uh, it, uh, the impeachment votes. And what did we see? We saw two challengers get in, the far right not be able to coalesce around someone, and Valadeo be able to very narrowly get his way uh, into the general. And so I think he owes Kevin McCarthy and whatever sort of uh, uh, assuaging of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's anger over the impeachment vote, uh, he owe, Valadeo owes quite a bit of debt to that uh, in the fact that he's even in this general election to begin with. Kevin McCarthy must have peeled a lot of strawberry starbursts uh, on his latest uh, trip to Mar-a-Lago for, for that one. <laughs> Speaking of Trump, uh, you know, it, it again in the news, the the, the latest uh, in from the Mar-a-Lago search is that um, District Judge uh, appointed a special master that both the DOJ and Trump's attorneys uh, um, said could, you know, would would be acceptable to review the documents that uh, that Trump's uh, team had asked for. It's Raymond Deary. He's a judge, federal judge appointed by Ronald Reagan uh, and used to be on the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Or the, and so it, it's it's it, interesting that that, you know, again, that keeps being in the news. And then also he went on Hugh Hewitt. Uh, we have a, a, a short clip uh, with Hewitt asking uh, the, the, the president about the possibility that he might be indicted and what the fallout would be. If they indict you, would that deter you from running for president again? I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. And as you know, if a thing like that happened, I would have no prohibition against running. But I think if it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. What kind of problems, Mr. President? I think they'd have big problems. Gabe, uh, I mean, aside from the familiar uh, tropes that, that Trump uses, the likes of which you've never seen before, the likes of which we've heard 9,000 times uh, from, mm -hmm. from the president, um, this this is one of those things where the, the, the president, I mean, like I, I was joking with some people that uh, maybe his lawyers couldn't dissuade him, you know, from uh, going on Hewitt's show and talking about this and, and putting himself in the spotlight because all their phones had been seized by the DOJ. Uh, I mean, this this is just one of those things that just keeps Trump in the spotlight uh, as we get closer to the midterm. Yeah, well, first off, what lawyers? I mean, he has like a rotating <laughs> cast because he can't keep them um, or they they're getting investigated too. Uh, let's put aside for a second the fact that a lot of this is sort of some of Trump's um, usual rhetorical tics. You have to read that as a threat. He is saying, uh, you know, it's a political threat. Um, he's saying, if I'm indicted, my people will, you know, 
who knows what they'll do. That's not very subtle. It's not surprising coming from him. He says things like that all the time. From a midterms perspective, since that was the question, yeah, I mean, if you're a Democrat, obviously you don't want to see the former president. You've seen what happens before. You don't want to see the former president essentially threatening political violence or something like that, not to put words in his mouth, but we know where this has gone in the past. Um, But of course, Trump being front and center has proven over the last number of years to be a very um, engaging thing for both Democrats and Republicans. You know, I wrote after the midterm, after the uh, 2019, or sorry, 2021, time is all a flat circle now, uh, elections in uh, Virginia and New Jersey, that it seemed like now that we're in the Trump era of politics and have been for half a decade, that we no longer can use a lot of the traditional expectations and rules about um, about midterms in particular, and that we do now live in a constantly, you know, uh, full turnout environment where people are just going to turn out for their side no matter what, um, and that it takes a lot to turn people off. And, you know, when you have Trump getting engaged like this, of course, it inflames his voters, but it also gets Democratic voters, whichever ones are still sitting on the sideline thinking, well, you know, we better make sure that Democrats are in office here. Obviously, Trump is not on the ballot, um, but he's trying very hard to act as if he is. Uh, you know, I've talked to plenty of Democrats who say, well, we don't want him to run for president again. But, you know, if he does, that would be great for us in the midterms because it would really focus support or focus attention on the Democratic side. Um, so, again, purely in terms of the politics here, I don't think any of us should be surprised that this is happening. But, you know, Trump is someone who demands to be at the center of attention of our politics at all times. And you're just seeing that again here. And speaking of the Trump era and and sort of Trumpian tactics, uh, we we had uh, we we saw that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's a potential uh, rival to Donald Trump for the 2024 Republican nomination for president, uh, he he chartered his own planes to send a bunch of migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard uh, as a you know what can only be sort of viewed as sort of a, a, a you know a stunt to show you know the you know the put attention on, on an issue, uh, you know, like to drop off some, you know, these poor folks from like Venezuela in the middle of an Island, uh, you know, the, with, with a bunch of rich Democrats and Alan Dershowitz. Um, Elena, you, you talked to a lot of uh, members, uh, both Democrats and Republicans about this. And this, uh, th- this may like help DeSantis with the base, but it, it, I, I can't help but think that a lot of, especially with some of the, the reactions that you saw from Republicans, that this this really comes across as as kind of cruel. I mean, these are people who are desperate and they're and they were lied to. They were told that they were being sent to either Boston or New York, and then they just end up in Martha's Vineyard. And it, it just it comes across as as like almost wantonly cruel. Yeah, a lot of people had that reaction. I spoke with many border district Democrats and Republicans, and and senators as well um, from some of those states. And they all saw it as a political stunt. And this follows, of course, governors Greg Abbott and Doug Ducey um, in Texas and Arizona, respectively, who have been busing migrants for months now to different parts of the country. Um, Abbott, you know, most notably sending many to Washington, D.C. Um, but the difference that a lot of people pointed out with this is that uh, in those cases, the migrants knew where they were going um, and had said that they wanted to go. And that's, I mean, it's typical. It's not out of the norm for a lot of NGOs do this and, and organizations send migrants to different parts of the country. They very rarely actually stay in the border states once they get there. They they end up trying to go and meet up with sponsors across the United States. But what a lot of people pointed out as being more cruel for what DeSantis did was that 
these people didn't know where they were going to. And, and many of them thought, like you said, that they were going, they were told they were going to Boston or New York and they ended up in Martha's Vineyard. Um, and I mean, it's a lot of, I mean, some Republicans, I'll also say did defend it though. They thought it was a good idea. They thought that it shines more light on the immigration problems that this country has and the overwhelming um, amount of migrants who are at the borders. But many of them and many Republicans uh, argued that this was just, you know, a politically motivating stunt and that humans should not be used as pawns in these games. I, I talked with uh, Veronica Escobar, who represents a Democrat who represents El Paso. Um, and she described DeSantis as me. She said, what this is, is showing that he's a quote, soulless human being. Um, and she also said that he reminds her of the people who quote, frequently like to have scripture on the lips and hate in their heart. Um, and that was pretty emblematic of, of what many Democrats told me. Um, and so a lot of people very upset and disturbed by what had happened. Um, but others, I will say, I mean, others and Republicans defending him. So it's an issue that I don't think there's unity on. I think a lot of people look at this differently, but um, definitely a surprising and, and disturbing stunt for a lot of for a lot of members as well. And uh, and Melanie, I mean, we, we should know too that the you know there, there was another uh, you know group of migrants that were quite literally deposited at the Naval Observatory uh, where the vice president's residence is uh, by you know, arranged by Greg Abbott. But I, I do think that there is something about the whole Martha's Vineyard thing. I mean, a great it's it's like champion trolling, you know, by Ron DeSantis. But there's di- a difference between like you know. You're placing somebody in Washington, D.C. or Chicago or New York City where there are services available and then like a place like Martha's Vineyard where nobody even knew that these folks were coming and, you know, the, the facilities to house them, to get them food, you know, people who actually do want to help. I mean, they really had to scramble to just figure out how to get these folks food. That's right. I mean, you uh, you, you said the word trolling and I think that that is um kind of you're, you're watching what happens when I think that you're sort of setting out a political program and governing by, by trolling right now is that it feels like every time that there is one of these and, and they're stunts. I mean, they're stunts that either you could say rightfully shine a light on the fact that border states are bearing an un, un, uh, disproportionate brunt of the weight of our immigration system, maybe. But these are still stunts that are trying to delight people that are watching Fox News, that are having this sort of own the libs mentality. Um, It just feels like it's this series of escalations. And my question is this sort of where do you go from here? I mean, the the Martha's Vineyard thing, I think, underscored that not only were we hearing um, about people who um, didn't know where they were going, some were apparently were actively deceived, told they were going to a city like Boston, that they were expedited work papers. I mean, I think that there is um, this element of using uh, people who are seeking asylum um, as political props um, that yes is going to thrill the hardcore base. It's going to thrill the folks on Twitter. It's going to thrill the folks who think that owning the libs is like the this, the single biggest sort of marker of success in the Republican Party. Um, but we are two years out from 2024, and I will say that when it comes to DeSantis and, and Abbott too, to a, to an extent, um, I can't help but think that that how do you maintain this sort of um, momentum, for lack of a better term, in this sort of own the libs um, tack that he is taking and and continue to build on it without flying too close to the sun. I try to think about how he would talk what has been this sort of over the top 
um, stunt that he's pulling uh, this week and thinking that, you know, we do see that the American people, there is a limit to how much uh, uh, people will put up with um, uh, politicizing around uh, around the border. I think back to 2018, family separation. I mean, that was something that that caused sort of mass uh, um, rejection from the from the from the American voters, because I think that they were really disgusted by what they saw. And I look at people like DeSantis and Abbott and think, where are you going to with this in a way that still makes you somewhat viable as a general election candidate? I can't imagine where where what this looks like in 2024. We have covered a lot today, uh, and uh, but we are going to wrap up. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, along with Melanie Mason, Gabe DiBenedetti, and Elena Treen. Uh, and as is our habit, we're going to uh, wrap up with our favorite stories of the week. These do not have to be political ones, uh, although there's no prohibition on politics on them. Uh, but anything that uh, is is just been a great read, funny, sad, important. Uh, Melanie, let's start with you. Well, I know that we are all national political reporters, but um, I love a good uh, local politics uh, story. And this week here in L.A., we had a juicy one um, in that one of our county supervisors, Sheila Kuehl, her um, was served a warrant early in the morning. She was hustled out of her house barefoot. This is an 81 year old woman um, and an ally of hers who runs a nonprofit similarly was served a warrant at her home. And it turned out that the sheriff of L.A. County has been uh, running this investigation uh, into this uh, seven or eight year old contract that looks like maybe there was a little bit of favoritism there and maybe just kind of some good old local government corruption. But the fun twist about this one is that these are also uh, women who have been leading investigating the sheriff. And so uh, I think that there is plenty of questions going on about if this is a little bit of political grandstanding, investigating your political enemies, particularly in the run up of what will be a very difficult reelection for him in November. Uh, there's so many good sort of juicy twists in terms of this, including the fact that the judge who signed the warrant happens to be um, very good friends with the lead investigator of the sheriff, who's also had a little bit of his own sort of uh, interesting past. I really think if anybody's interested, I encourage you to go read my colleagues on this one, the LA Times. But I just feel like this whole saga is like a season in the wire. I love it. I love good local politics, uh, mudslinging. And, and this was a good one this week. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Elena. So I was split between two. Um, one, which was my colleague met up with um, the Tampa Bay legend who has 500 plus copies of Titanic on VHS and now 50,000 TikTok followers. Wow. Um, which I just thought, yeah. I'm, and the lead that my colleague went with was Jack Dawson didn't die at the end of the movie Titanic. He swam down to Tampa Bay. That's what you think <laughs> walking into the home of Titan of this Titanic fan who's gathered a cult following on social media, um, which I just thought was incredible. Um, and I know we're not supposed to have two, but one that I also really loved um, and I found very wholesome is um, a woman from Scotland. There, there, there's a woman in Scotland who can smell changes in body odor that corresponds to the present um, or onset of Parkinson's disease. And she's now working with scientists to develop um, a test that involves scraping a cotton ball over the back of the neck for examination and helping uh, detect early onset Parkinson's, which I find is just incredible and also like a little bit strange. They describe it as a curse and a benefit um, for this woman for being able to have that sense. And she first discovered it when uh, she noticed an abrupt change in the smell of her husband when he was 33 years old, who ended up having Parkinson's. And so kind of an incredible story. And, and I mean, 
just fascinating to me that this woman has that ability and now she's working with scientists to develop testing. Um, so those are my two for the week. Yeah. That, that last one almost sounds like it could be a, like a real life, like X-Men, you know, story or something. Totally. <laughs> a strange uh, superpower. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, my, my, my favorite story was, it was actually a column. Um, I mean, there's been, we are really in this weird fulcrum, you know, like this, this turning point in, in major sports with retirements by people like Serena Williams and, and, uh, and Roger Federer, uh, and Candace Buckner, who's a Washington post column, a sports columnist. She wrote this, uh, column about Albert Pujols. She's a St. Louis native and she had gone to, Pittsburgh to see the the Cardinals take on the Pirates and and hoping that she would get uh, a, a a you know like you know watch, be able to watch Pujols and what is his last season uh, in which will be a, a likely Hall of Fame career first ballot Hall of Famer and it, it's such a sad column because she the the blast game of the series that she was at was kind of boring the cardinals were behind and she you know she started thinking like ah i just got to i got to get on the road i got to get back to dc it's a four and a half hour drive she started thinking about you know as she said all these sort of adult uh like incursions about gas prices in west virginia versus you know pennsylvania blah 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 and so she left uh, and then she found out that Pools in the ninth inning hit the go-ahead home run, which happened to also be his 697th home run. <laughs> this historic moment, and she's just like she's just like sort of uh, just anguished about the fact that she left the game early. And it's such a good like human moment uh, that that she portrays because we all feel that sometimes. Like, oh, do I really want to sit here for the ninth inning? Uh, and and it's it's a, it's a really great way of capturing also this moment I think that we're in, which is. A very significant one. Um, Gabe, I uh, we're going to go to you uh, to wrap us up. I, I want you to tell us about one of your favorite stories from your new book, The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union <laughs> of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. It came out this week. Uh, what have you got? No pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks so much. I, I think the best way to do this is, uh, well, first off, let me just say thanks so much. Ed. The book is about the long, very complicated relationship between these two men that is like deeply underappreciated by folks. And what I I, I want to recommend the conversation that I had with Bill about it that I think will come out next week, which was wonderful. Um, I think there's something for everyone, you know, whether you're interested in the earliest days before, you know, they were even both senators before before Obama joined the Senate or their time working together on the ticket in 08 or their time whatever. I don't need to run through all of political history. But what I do want to say is rather than give you a specific story, uh, issue a little bit of a challenge, which is there is a uh, implicit Bill Press mention in the book where uh, one of Bill's books becomes a minor plot point. And I want to see if any readers <laughs> notice this um, because it feels like an important moment uh, in that little moment in history, which is, uh, I'll say, not extremely recent history, but recent enough that people will know what I'm talking about when they come across it. Uh, and I think that that would be a, I would be fascinated to know if anyone can figure that out. That That's awesome. Yes. And and again, this relationship continues to play out in front of our eyes. I mean, the Obamas were at the White House just last week to, for their portrait unveilings. So uh, th- great. Uh, there'll be a link also to buy the book uh, in the episode notes uh, for this podcast. Uh, that is a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to Melanie Mason, National Political Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Gabe Benedetti, National Correspondent for New York Magazine, and Elena Treen, Congressional Reporter for Axios and co-author of Axios's Sneak Peek Newsletter. 
I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill. Next Tuesday, Bill will be back with an interview with Gabe on this new book. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable.